right, we'll need somebody to tell me that we exist. That's the eternal challenge. Um, so how far away are you from the observatory? Like if you want to go up and like hug the telescope in person, how long is the trip to oh, take you? I mean, it's a trip cross country for me. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So yeah, because I'm at Penn State. So and there's observatories in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. all the American observatories are all in that same area in the Southwest pretty much. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's, it'd be nice. Like I know people have considered putting like another mega observatory in that area, but I guess it just doesn't quite compare with the clear skies of Hawaii or Canary islands or Chile, especially. Yeah. Chile is especially nice. Cause they have, I mean, the weather up there is just, there's not really any rain. Like Kipik gets a yearly monsoon. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, uh, I guess it's time to go. So, so the question I always ask people, who are you? What do you do? Yeah. Um, I'm Andrea Lynn. I'm a fourth year grad student at Penn state. Um, and I work on finding exoplanets and instrumentation, including, uh, NUID, which is this new spectrograph that we've built. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's talk, I want to jump right in and talk about the actual instrument because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, not a lot of people, I think, know about this instrument. Um, I mentioned I mentioned to you in my email, but Jason Wright from Penn State pointed me towards it a, a couple of years ago. Is sort of like his the next really exciting instrument that was that was coming online to to search for planets, and uh, and that sort of tweaked my interest. And sort of every time an interesting paper comes up about uh, is it how do you guys say it? Neid. Newid. Newid. Fluid. Fluid. Okay. Okay. All right. Newid. Yeah. You know, I've sort of looked at sort of where it at and where the progress is. So, so what is the the NUID, uh spectrometer, spectrograph, spectrograph? Yeah. Well, I mean, we say both. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess spectrometer more accurately refers to the whole thing. Um, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? <laughs> so what is it? <laughs> what is it? Yeah. So this is basically it is a radio velocity spectrograph. Uh, so it looks for essentially the very tiny variations in the wavelengths of light as, you know, a star gets pulled around by the gravitational pull of its planet or planets. Um, oh, so sorry. Please continue. Oh, yeah. And so basically um, to look for small planets around um, you know, sun-like stars or K-stars, which are the orange dwarfs, um, you have to get down to really, really precise uh velocities of you know under one meter per second is what you're trying to measure mm -hmm. and so that's what we've done a lot of with new is we've tried to you know like do things to make this instrument really really stable so that we can actually measure those tiny little shifts in the wavelength of light and, and thanks to missions like kepler and tess and a lot of those other instruments people are very familiar with the transit method and it's been very productive in finding exoplanets but the radio velocity method is sort of the og method of of finding planets the first planets that we knew of were, were detected using this this technique so so where does the radial velocity method give you benefit as opposed to the transit method right so the thing about the transit method is that you can only find planets whose orbits are edge on because it relies on the planet passing in front of its star as as seen from our point of view. Um, so the RV method, you don't need to have that. I mean, it still has to be 
you know, it can't be a completely face-on system, or we would have, you know, no gravitational tug along our line of sight. But, you know, even if the planet's not transiting, uh, the RV method can pick it out. Now, the downside is that you have to essentially focus on one system at a time. Like when you're observing a star, you can't just take, you know, this entire huge field that, you know, you know, Kepler stared at for four years. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Tessa's covering the entire sky. With the RV method, you have to stare at um, one thing at a time when you're doing observations. Is it, I mean, I wonder, is there any way? I mean, could you? I mean, I'm sure this doesn't exist yet, but I wonder if you could scan an entire field of view, measure the spectra of all of those stars simultaneously, and then try to test any changes. But I guess you sort of have to focus in on the spectra of each individual star. Yeah, I guess you could do something like um, uh, like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, where they have those plug plates with all the individual yeah. fibers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do wonder if you could try something like that. But yeah. And as far so, as I know, it hasn't been done yet. But really, they're complementary, right? Like, like radio velocity mm-hmm. and transit work best together because they fill in each part of the puzzle. Right. So the transit will tell you the size of the planet or radius. Um, and then the radio velocity tells you M or at least M sinai because there's an inclination factor with how the orbit is tilted. But yeah, so they, they do provide very complementary information. And so then, you know, you were mentioning that, you know, with the transit method, you really need to have that planet passing directly in front of the star from our perspective. And I know, you know, the research that I've done in the past, it works at like 1% of planets are in that kind of a configuration. It's it gets worse if the planet is farther away from the from the star. Mm-hmm. So how far above or below the plane of the ecliptic? can your planet be to provide meaningful data or after a while you're, you're seeing, as you say, you know, face on, and it's not helpful. Um, it does depend on, you know, how massive the planet is with respect to the star. But I mean, you know, theoretically, if it's, you know, a really massive, if it's a really massive, say like Jupiter size or a brown dwarf planet, and it's, you know, inclined like this to our line of sight, we could probably still get something out of it. Uh, I mean, the signal will be small, but since the planet is so massive, it can still detect something. Yeah. So it really kind of just depends, which is not a very satisfying answer. But... <laughs> it, de- it depends. Yeah, you know, it's, that's perfect. It's, that's almost as bad as inconclusive, but I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I want to talk about just like like what's actually going on. When we, when we talk about the radial velocity method, you talk about how the, the planet is yanking the star with its gravity what kinds of speeds are involved here? You know, if you were like staring at the star and it was moving towards you, how fast are we looking at? Yeah, so for an Earth-like planet around a sun-like star, um, it's about 10 centimeters per second. So which... <clears throat> so in other words, this, this, the star is out there and it is approaching mm-hmm. you at 10 centimeters every second. Yes. Right. At maximum. Right. <laughs> Right, and then um, and it stops, this, and then it goes back the other way. Yeah. Right. There's this wonderful graphic um, that I know has been posted in the wind control room um, where there's a desert tortoise because uh, its top speed is about 10 centimeters per second. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to measure. <laughs> right. Space. 
<laughs> right. Just to give you some context to never forget. Yeah. Um, so then like how difficult is that to detect? Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. And to be, to be completely honest, we're not quite to the 10 centimeters per second mark yet. Um, so we're somewhere around, you know, 30 to 50 centimeters per second is generally what um, the instrumental precision of of like the, the current generation of instruments is, um, as far as we know. Um, and I say instrumental precision because it's like, there is how, how well can your instrument measure the velocity, but also, you know, the star is also, you know, doing things. It has maybe star spots, it has like stellar activity, it might have flares or something. And those can also contribute to like the noise that you see in the RVs. Right. And, and so the, the paper that, that I sort of triggered on that you had just wrapped up with a bunch of your colleagues was essentially looking at the sun first mm -hmm. with this instrument. So can you talk about this? Yeah. Yeah. So basically we have, um, we have a solar feed system for NUID. So, you know, of course, during the night, NUID um, uses the 3.5 meter wind telescope. Um, but during the day, we have this little solar tracker with, you know, a lens that's parked on the side of the wind building, and that feeds solar light into NUID. And what that allows us to do is, well, the reason we want to look at the sun is because, you know, we know what's orbiting the sun. And... <laughs> We have, you know, other instruments that can tell us, you know, is the sun being active right now? You know, is there a sunspot? You know, is it doing some massive flare thing? Um, and so by looking at the sun, we can essentially check our answers. Um, you know, we can observe what the RVs are and we can be like, oh, you know, there's a sunspot going on right now. And that's probably what we're seeing here or something like that. Um, right. And so that's pretty much what the point of the uh, solar feed system is, is to, you know, give us this really nice data stream that not allows, that not only allows us to investigate, um, you know, what do we do to, like, uh, cancel out, you know, new its own instrumental effects, but also, you know, if you want to study stellar activity, you know, what techniques can we apply? And then, you know, we have, you know, the answers that we could check at the end. And so what and so what did you find? I mean, did you I mean, it feels like turning this this telescope or this instrument on the sun for a long time probably gave you quite a few insights about how it works. Yeah, and it did. Um, and so basically what we find is that, you know, on in our best case scenario, we get um, instrumental plus, you know, whatever the sun's doing, our total precision is about. 40 centimeters per second in mm -hmm. our absolute best case. Um, and so the paper that I've written is more of an instrumentation engineering paper. Um, so I don't go too much into detail on, you know, what are the implications of the data set? I haven't dug too deep personally into, you know, what can we find out from this? Um, there's other papers coming out that will be focused on that. Um, but if you said like first. it's a 40 centimeter feels like sort of your best case at this point, that's mm -hmm. pretty far away from the 10 centimeters that you're that you're hoping to get. Yeah. And the thing is, 
knew it was never meant to get to 10 centimeters per second. Um, our, uh, our calculated error, instrumental error, is 27. So. Right. And then you add something from the sun, and you probably end up with something, you know, 30 to 40. Now, is that an issue of the the size of the telescope that that knew it is is has access to like the largest telescope that it can get its access to like if it was able to be parked down in Chile and had access to the very large telescope, would it be able to bring that the error down? Hmm. It's a good question. I, I don't know how much of or error actually comes from say, like the photon noise or other, you know, I, I don't know that attaching it to a larger telescope would actually help that much because some hmm. of it's, some of that error is just, you know, inherent in how it's designed. Well, well I know that like without adaptive optics, mm -hmm. there's a limit to how good a telescope on earth can even be like a, a fairly large background telescope is about the limits of what you can do until you actually start to deal with the atmospheric disturbance and and have better skies. So but I'm wondering if because I guess I guess sort of where I'm going with this is 27 feels within striking distance of 10 and 10 is the Holy Grail. And, mm -hmm. and if there's a way to be able to detect these these planets, that's, that's really exciting. And, and so does, does Nude feel like a pathfinder for this technology and, and the various pieces that can then feed into a next generation version that maybe could be attached to a bigger telescope? Or is there any, is there some kind of fundamental limit for what's possible here on Earth, and you're going to have to go to space to take the, the technique further? Hmm, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I know, at least in, in terms of like, um, decreasing the precision floor gets essentially exponentially harder as you try and get to, well, so like the, the previous generation, you know, we were getting 50 to 100 centimeters per second. And now we're getting, you know, somewhere in the 30 to 50 range. And then it's, I think there's just more things that you have to take into account and everything has to be essentially perfect as you try to get down towards 10 centimeters per second. I think it's doable, but um, it's going to take a future generation of instruments, I think. I mean, it is, as I said, like, it's really exciting to have this capability from the ground for all the reasons that we see with the other telescopes that are out there that you can upgrade them, improve them, uh, swap out new instruments, hug them, as I mentioned, you know, <laughs> all of the all of the like, once things go up into space, as we're as we're watching with James Webb, it just becomes terrifyingly distant and hard to work with. And so it does feel like the, the possibility that you could make these kinds of radio velocity measurements from the surface of the earth is feels really exciting to me. Mm, yeah, I, I agree for sure. Um, so the but, but sort of the other thing, of course, is like you talk to the people who are doing the direct imaging, and they're they're having to work out coronagraphs, and they talk about how they need to dim the light of the star by a billion billion to be able to reveal the planets, and they're sort of the same thing. But in theory, hopefully, like the extremely large telescope should be able to do the trick uh, when it comes mm -hmm. online in in twenty twenty six. So maybe we're going to be getting these. So 
how do you feel like, like radio velocity, how all these sort of different techniques for finding planets, because because at the core, that's what you do, you look for planets. So yeah. you know, you have access to all these tools, how do you think they're going to come together and, and play together in the future? Ooh. <laughs> well, I mean, I can I can tell you that at least right now, um, what I work on is I work on a lot of test follow up. So test flags, objects of interest, mm -hmm. you know, test these at transit, and then we follow it up with RVs from the ground, um, and also uh, adaptive optics and speckle imaging, basically to make sure the stars are you know, single and it's, you know this star does host the transit. It's not a background thing. Um, so that is how they fit together right now. And I think they'll continue to work together in that way for quite a while. Um, do you do you see techniques coming down the pike that you are pretty excited about? Like one example, of course, is the astrometry method, which Gaia is going to be potentially delivering a lot of planets. Um, what other techniques do you are you looking forward to coming online? Yeah, so I mean, Gaia, uh, Gaia DR three is definitely going to be very exciting yeah. for, not I mean, not just exoplanets, but um, definitely for exoplanets. <laughs> yeah. Just being able to actually have the precision to measure, you know, astrometric, um, astrometric orbits is going to be very, very cool. Um, especially because you get you actually get more information out of that than you do with RVs because you have two dimensions on the sky. Oh, so so can you explain that for a second there? So what do you mean by you get more more information? Um, so the thing is that with a, it's at least, I believe it's easier to tell with an astrometric orbit, you know, what the eccentricity of the orbit is and how it's oriented, mm -hmm. um, with respect to, you know, our line of sight. And uh, so for people have... who don't understand, right, that with, with the astrometry, you're essentially tracking the position of the star and watching it make these tiny little circles as the planet is is yanking it around. But instead of the, the star coming towards and away from us, you're actually seeing these little these little circles in the sky. And so you and so you're saying that then you would be able to see more information about the orbit of the planet, the eccentricity, the yeah. the angle, etc. And I mean, that stuff you can get from radial velocities, um, but you do require like a well sampled time series to get that. Is that any other? So what do you think, you know, 10 years, 20 years down the road, what do you think is going to end up being like the most productive method? Is there something that's going to unlock tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of worlds? Hmm. Honestly, I don't think there's going to be any particular one that does it. Um, I mean, transits might give us a lot of candidates, um, especially with things like tests. And then, you know, there's um, the LSST, Rubin. Uh, that's an all-sky survey coming online. That probably won't have the same kind of exact precision, but, you know, all-sky surveys like that... Um, could give us a lot of transit candidates. Hmm. I never thought about Rubin as a transit telescope. Yes, and I I don't know if their cadence will be good enough. So I don't know about Rubin in particular because they aim to cover the entire sky every I think it's three or four days. Mm -hmm. But they're not, you know, continuously staring at 
one patch of sky for a month like Tess is. Yeah. So they're, you know, getting a field, moving over, getting a field, getting... So I don't know if Ruben in particular will do it, but in general, all sky surveys um, might be a good candidate and definitely Gaia for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Those are, those are probably my two favorite missions slash telescopes, you know, instruments out there mm-hmm. right now. I'm a, I'm a gigantic fan of survey instruments. I, I, I really like this idea, even like way back to like the Sloan digital sky survey. I love this idea that you can just gather all the data, dump it onto the internet, and then people can pick through it later on to find interesting information as opposed to having to book time on Hubble or James Webb. I mean, God, let's think if you've, <laughs> if you've, if you've set J, you know, if your research relies on James Webb and you put in your proposals, whatever, 20 years ago, you're still waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can also report that um, James Webb proposals are a bloodbath. Um, <laughs> it's difficult to get time on that telescope. The is a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you feel like the field of of exoplanetary science is is changing from, you know, from we found a planet. Yeah, we found a planet, too, to now we're seeing thousands. What is this really telling us about our place in the Milky Way? Yeah, so I think definitely it's become instead of, you know, oh, we found a planet. It's like, well, now we have a population of these planets. And, you know, how what does that tell us about, you know, are these planets common? Do they how do they form? And I think we're getting to the point where we can actually ask those sorts of questions instead of just having like single data points. Um, so I guess, are we normal? That's a hard question because <laughs> we haven't really found that many planets that are like the Earth. Um, they're hard to detect. They are small, rocky planets with fairly long periods. Yeah. At least in terms of you know what we can detect right now. So, I think that question might have to wait another twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that... I mean, at least we know that planets themselves are common but planets like ours still a bit more i mean we think they're common but we don't really have you know, definitive evidence yet yeah i mean i guess the analogy that i always like is that that if you look up in the sky all the stars that you can see are giant many times the mass of the sun hundreds or even thousands of light years away extreme examples of stars and so mm-hmm. if you looked up in the, in, in the sky, you'd be like, our sun is really weird and abnormal compared to what's out there. But but we know it is fairly normal. I guess I guess normal would be a red dwarf. But um, but it's just because we we only see the extreme examples with our eyes. And right now, in terms of planets, we see giant planets with many times the mass of Jupiter orbiting within a couple of days of their of their star, which is the extremes or planets orbiting around M dwarfs, which is again, sort of, you know, at the limits. Um, so so you still you do think it's sort of too soon to, to get any sense if, if the solar system is a an average example of a of a planetary system in the in the Milky Way? Um, if you're talking about the whole solar system, I definitely think it is. Um, 
because you know when we might be able to detect something like Jupiter nowadays, you know we don't know if like if if we find an exo Jupiter, we don't know if it has you know seven other planets orbiting with it. So I think it's too early to tell whether our solar system is common. Um, but I think we at least have an inkling that you know small rocky planets like Earth are probably common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's. Um... Yeah, like I said, you know, as we move into this new era where we do know of tens of thousands of, of planets, it, and as, as astronomers are looking at them in terms of just populations, it's it's pretty interesting just to just sort of see what the trends are as we move towards, you know, are we normal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what is what's next for for you and for this and for this instrument? Um yeah, so Newit has actually started science operations. Um, we started full science operations in June of this year. Um, and so I've been actually, uh, looking into some K-dwarfs with Nuid. Some, sorry, uh, so some K-dwarf, what? K-dwarfs. K-dwarfs. Okay. Uh, okay. Right. So, so yeah, K-type stars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So just like a little smaller than the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I'm interested in K-dwarfs is because, um, especially with Nuid is that since they're orange, they have a good portion of the information in their spectrum is in the red optical and near infrared, which suits Newid's wavelength coverage. And we think that K-dwarfs are also, um, you know, common planet hosts uh, based on, you know, Kepler, etc. And they're also a little more sun-like than M-dwarfs. Um, so M-dwarfs are... I mean, they're very common, but they're unlike the sun. Um, you know, they have sometimes these huge magnetic flares. Um, they have these really long pre-main sequence phases where they're um, like extremely overluminous. Hmm. And K-dwarfs are a little bit more like the sun. So, um, but since they're less massive, you know, an Earth-sized planet um, has a larger RV uh, signal. And and does that allow a a Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone of a K-dwarf, is that detectable with Nuit? Um, Best case scenario says yes. <laughs> so for the later type K-dwarfs, um, like a K7, which is the uh, coolest and least massive type of K-dwarf, um, something, you know, that's maybe one Earth mass, maybe two Earth masses um, in the habitable zone could potentially be done with it and i mean they're actually a very exciting kind of of world uh, kind of stars because they're they're longer lived than the sun not as hostile in their early stages as as m dwarves although as you said they can be a little persnickety um but i think finding a habitable world around a k dwarf is almost as exciting as finding a uh, an Earth-like world around a sun-like star. Yeah, I mean, I agree, which is why I'm looking at these K-dwarfs. But yeah, there there are a lot of um, astrobiological positives, as you mentioned, is that we think they're pretty quiet for most of their lifetime, and they have long lifetimes. Yeah, they'll live like 70, 80 billion years, while mm-hmm. the sun's only got like, whatever, 10 in it. Yeah. And you know, red dwarfs will, will last literally forever, but <laughs> good luck dealing with their childhood. Um, 
so how many, I guess, like, what is the process of surveying for these? So do you pick a, a K dwarf at random, K star at random and, and observe it for several nights? Do you do you're, are you observing a whole bunch at the same time looking for changes? How does the actual like observation schedule work with this instrument? Yeah, so um, new it is queue scheduled, which basically means I have my targets, I upload them to the queue. And then based on like a priority ranking, um, they get executed whenever you know, weather allows. And so what I've done is I've picked about 10k dwarfs. Um, and I've you know filtered them based on, you know, does Gaia see anything that mm. thinks this is a binary, or has this been observed by other RV instruments before, and you know it doesn't show any huge RV variations. Um, so I've done some essentially preliminary filtering off of that, and just you know taken my top ten targets, and um, so those are basically in the nude queue and I try to get them observed, um, every couple of days. Mm. Does, um, of course it's dependent on queue scheduling and, uh, and the weather, weather, which is the, which you don't get in with a space telescope or, yeah. <laughs> or a radio telescope. Um, but, but then, so like, how long of an observation do you need? How much data do you require to, to fill in the gaps for what you're observing? Yeah. So, um, each star requires about, you know, a half hour observation mm. every couple of days, but, and so one half hour observation gets me one RV point, but the thing is I needed a long time series. So this program that I'm running right now, which is, um, probably could be a huge part of my thesis work. Uh, it's slated to run for three years. Yeah. Um, and so you're doing a, a half hour analysis of the star Ideally, how often? Um, ideally, something like three-ish days. So every three days, you're using half an hour of of instrument time to scan this this star. That sounds like a big ask. It is not and James Webb why... oversubscribed, <laughs> but right. Um, but yeah, so right with ten targets, um, I think I asked. For, I guess for forty hours of new time, um, and you know you don't always get what you propose for, but mm. that's what I asked for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, come on, it's your thesis defense. It's <laughs> important. Um, and so, you, you know, did you already have some hint that these ten stars had planets? No, because this is what's called a blind RV search. So basically, you know, I've taken, you know, all the K-dwarfs that are, um, actually, I've restricted myself to ones that are within 20 parsecs or thereabouts. Um, so that's like about 60 because, years? Yeah, something 60 or 70. Yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, close by stars are more amenable to follow up if we want to say direct imaging or... You know something like that so you know from the list of stars within 20-ish parsecs um i've basically gone through and seen like oh well you know this other rv instrument says this one you know it varies all over the place it's probably really active or something let's not do that one 
Right. Or, you know, Gaia thinks this one might be a binary. Let's not do that. And that's how we slowly whittled them down to, you know, here's our top 10. But we don't know if any of these have planets. But is there any way, like, I don't know, is there there any way to measure the axis of rotation of a star to know if it's, like, if we're looking down its planet of the ecliptic? Um... Well, I mean, you you can, but I don't know if it's doable for all stars, hmm. especially for slow rotators. Um, so, yeah, well, so so there is this thing called uh, v sine i, which is basically it's a measure of the rotation speed of a star, and again, it's sine i because it's the component that we see along our line of sight. Um, so. At least from that, you can tell if a star is a really fast rotator mm-hmm. uh, because its spectral lines will be broadened out by right. like the range of velocities that you see in the rotation. Um, so we generally tend to pick slow rotators. Um, so but then avoiding those, okay. Right. Because the broader that the lines are, um, the more smeared out they are, the harder it is to get an accurate centroid. And that plays havoc with our ability to actually you know, measure tiny RV shifts. Right. Okay. So the sharper the lines are, the better for us. Right. And I've you know, thought about like sunspots, but even just like various variations from a star. I don't know if there's, if there's, but I guess if like the star is changing in brightness slightly because of flares or whatever, you still wouldn't know which way it was turning, just that it's getting a little brighter, a little dimmer because there's activity mm-hmm. or flares or, or whatever. So, I'm trying to think if there's any way you can like narrow down, but I, but I guess with astrometry, you sure could like if you're seeing stars that are, that are not wobbling, then either we're looking at them from their plane of the ecliptic or they don't have planets. Yes. If the astrometry is precise enough. Right. And I guess we have to wait for the third release from Gaia to, to, Mm -hmm. to, to find those. But I guess you could almost rule out the ones that are carving nice little circles in the sky because you know that radio velocity isn't going to work for those. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating search and how many years is going to go into this paper? Do you figure? Uh, slated for three and I'm about half a year in. Wow. And have you been able to get as much of the time on telescope as you were hoping? Um, not quite. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, part of that is just, you know, weather. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, again, so, you're, so, so over the course of three years, hopefully doing observations every few days, you should end up with a thousand observations of each of these stars. Is that right? Oh, no. Um, I don't. Oh man, I, I checked my numbers again. Yeah, but I think yeah. it's going to be in the hundreds, about a hundred. Okay, okay, right, okay. So you'll have a, you'll have a hundred. Um, because uh, they're also not up for the entire year. So right, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. and the like weather twoish. Yeah, yeah, and the weather can suck as well, and so, um, and so you're going to get these observations, and then how obvious i guess if you were looking at the data and you're looking at the changes in the in the spectra of of the star 
what would you be looking for? So, right. I guess I we, we would be looking for any kind of clear periodic patterns. Um, so you can use a periodogram, uh, which basically you know takes that signal and inverts it into a frequency. Um, and if you know, there's a spike in the periodogram, that's you know you know maybe there's actually a signal at that time. It is tricky, however, especially at the few meters per second level and below because of stellar activity, um, which can often, you know, masquerade as some kind of like sinusoidal-ish pattern hmm. that can mimic planets. And I guess this comes all the way back around to the work that you're doing right now with the sun. So mm -hmm. what, how much difference do you think the sun is going to be compared to observing a K-star? Uh, what exactly do you mean? Like, well, I mean, mean like, like, different? like you're detecting variations in the sun's brightness and how that's going to impact the radio velocity measurements that you're making from what you know about K stars. Like I'm assuming this work that you're doing with the sun is to help apply across many different kinds of stars. What does a star that is having some activity look like compared to like, I'm trying to like if you looked at a couple of data points and said, "Oh, that's not a planet; those are flares." Like, what would be what would tell you that it's not a planet? Right. So, I mean, it is tricky. So, for you know, large events like flares, um, usually you'll see you know one data point shoot way off, and you can be like, "Okay, that's you know that's just an outlier." But for the kinds of you know like normal stellar activity like uh, granulation you know these convection cells on the sun um that's much harder to distinguish because it's not a sudden single event um it's you know this process that you know it, they just keep bubbling over time essentially yeah. and so there's there's work that um my colleagues and a lot of other people are doing looking into different ways to distinguish stellar activity from you know a planet which should just cause you know all the lines to shift in the exact same way right. um so they're looking at like differences between the lines there are some lines that we know to be more magnetically sensitive so watching how those change over time might give us an idea of activity as well um and so this is not something that i personally work on but um i i know i have a lot of colleagues who work on mm -hmm. this kind of stuff so what would be your best case scenario? What would be the when you sit down and look at all the data, what would be mm -hmm. the, the thing that would get you kind of most excited? I mean, probably just to see, you know, a clear, a clear sinusoidal planet signal. And then, you know, after we check it against all our, you know, known stellar activity indicators, that nothing pops up there. I so mean, it's actually a. Well, so I could do you better. I think if you found like multiple signals around one star that would, mm -hmm. you know, at different distances that would tell you that maybe there's a couple of planets in here, that would be even more exciting. I mean, oh, that would. Yeah. But multiple planets are, they, they make things even trickier. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, is I wonder though. I mean, multiple planets is 
easier to deal with with the transit method than the radio velocity because it's just like adds horrible noise to your data, right? Yeah. Because yeah, if you have more than one, you know, sinusoid on top of each other, they can sometimes interact in, you know, odd ways. Yeah, yeah, that would be, and I mean, that would be tricky. Yeah. If, you know, if they were two perfectly clean signals on top of each other, you know, a periodogram would be able to say pick both of them out. But we don't necessarily have you know perfectly clean data, so <laughs> Right, right, right. Awesome. Well, I, I don't want to take over of your time. But it's uh, like I said, I'm a huge fan of, of this instrument of this technique of sort of this changing landscape of, of exoplanet research. And it sort of feels like the, the cutting edge of like, what what comes next. So and you're able to sort of answer a whole bunch of my very nitty gritty questions about <laughs> how, how this technique works and, and this instrument as well. So thank you so much for your time. If people want to follow your work, where should they go? Um, oh, that's actually a good question. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have like a Twitter or anything. Yep. That's bad. That's um, probably best. Yep. Yeah. But I mean, um, if you want to follow the Newid team, um, you can you know look up Newid. Um, we do have a blog site that is yep infrequently updated, but we do update <laughs> it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I guess just you know look for papers and press releases. Yeah. Well, if, if I look forward to you discovering the first uh, Earth-sized world around a uh, K-type star. In the habitable oh, zone. I mean, I hope so, but <laughs> what right. the data says. Well, Andrew, good luck with your with your PhD defense. Hopefully, next time you're Doctor Lin and uh, and you've found your planet. All right, well, all right. Thank you very much. All right, thanks a lot. Bye bye.